Welcome to Journey to the Stage, I'm Brian Frazier. Today we're going to be highlighting current and upcoming projects, but we always start our journey at the beginning. This is episode number 14, and my guest today is singer, songwriter, and recording artist Bill Melanie. So before Bill and I start our chat today, wherever you listen, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of the other great platforms, if you could give this podcast a follow or a subscription, that would be great. Kind reviews and stars are always appreciated. Bill Melanie is my special guest today, and you guys are in for a real treat. Bill is a singer, songwriter, and recording artist who, between his solo work and his work in his former band, Vigilantes of Love, where he was a founding member, has over 80 albums to his credit and a career spanning over 30 years. Paste Magazine readers named Bill number 65 out of the 100 greatest living songwriters, which is quite an honor. And here's a really cool quote from Rolling Stone Magazine about Bill. Bill Melanie has remained fascinated with the shadowy emotional toils and struggles inherent in the American experience. Compelling and insightful, he continues to probe through Americana rock and roll, proving that sometimes the only story worth telling is that of the journey. Bill is a poet and Bill is a troubadour. Bill, it's great to have you on Journey to the Stage. Welcome. Uh, Brian, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've got my cup of coffee here to accompany us during our chat. So how are, how are you and the missus doing? We're doing well. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a late spring here in, uh, in northern New Mexico where we live. Uh, you had mentioned that you can uh, look out your window and see the Sierras. We can look out and see the Rockies, part of the Sangre de Cristo chain. So, uh, beautiful. That uh, sucks to be us. <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful. Well, this is kind of the time of year where you really get the, uh, the kind of tempestuous weather. It's all transitional out here right now. Right, so. right, right. Well, I'm really glad you joined me. We have much to talk about and a few songs to dig into. So let's, let's take a step back a bit. You know, if we were to go back in uh, your childhood, what, what kind of music were you raised around? That's a good question. My uh, my dad was a, a kind of a semi-pro drummer, and he had a, a pretty extensive jazz uh, set of, uh, of vinyl. So that's kind of what I first heard. My, my parents kind of came together over, uh, I'm pretty sure they dated over Sinatra records. That's just what it seems like. Uh, they always went back to Frank. So, uh, you know, I got, you know, the Count Basie arrangements from the orchestra and you know, her drummers like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. So about the time I was 12 years old, I because uh, they I they had asked me if I was going to get a drum set and get into kit drumming, I had to take orchestral snare drum first, which was a utter bore. But I did learn, you know, the rudiments. And I did go and... Uh, this is a sweet story, and I'll just share it. My, my dad and mom have both moved on, but uh, he was a research chemist, and he, he we were living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's where I grew up. So he was traveling down to uh, Wilson, North Carolina, I think, to do uh, to do some sort of consulting. And he came back one Friday afternoon, knocked on the door, and he had the snare drum in his hand. It was a beautiful black uh, oyster pearl, just like Ringo's uh, 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 Ludwig snare drum. Right. And I said, oh, man, that is so great. Thank you, Dad. That's great. And he said, well, the rest of it's in the car. Mm. So he had stopped by a music store and bought the whole kit. So there was no turning back. This was 12 years old. And, uh, you know, he would he would show me Joe Morello, like, take five, you know, playing in five, four time. Okay. And, you know, I'd say, Billy, if you can play, if you can solo in five, four time, you know, that's really something. <laughs> so anyway, I was, you know, I, would, I played jazz drums kind of for a little while. But by the time Ringo and Charlie Watts entered the food chain for me, it, it was all over. It was going to be rock and roll. Well, you weren't, you weren't alone in that. I think <laughs> when they entered the musical scene, I think that changed much for many, many 
and I realized now that I was kind of sensing a certain, you know, transcendence mm-hmm. in, in rock and roll that I wasn't hearing in other music. And uh, I, it'd be interesting to compare notes with other songwriters about, because it's an elusive term, you know, when you say something's transcendent, but when you start hearing it in a particular genre, you begin later on as an artist to start recognizing it in other genres of music, you know, whether it's symphonic or flamenco or something like that. It's like, it, it's everywhere. So uh, that's kind of been part of the journey for me is sort of uh, appreciating it, you know, even though I write Americana music, you know, and, and rock and roll and country alt or whatever they're calling it these days. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love hearing it in other uh, other cultures. Well, that's great. Now, when you were buying your own albums as you were playing the radio station for yourself when you got a little bit older, what were you getting into? Um, where I was at in Chapel Hill, that's a really good question. There was a lot of uh, surf music, uh, soul music, R&B. The top 40 was just voraciously, you know, funneling that stuff. So the first band that I actually played in, I think I was 14 or 15, it was a soul band. Oh, wow. uh, and we did, you know, Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and all, all the great stuff. It was it was pretty uh, challenging. Had a horn section and everything. Wow. So we, were, we, were, wow. we thought we were on fire. How fun. You know, writing is is such a, a, a skill that is honed over time. And thinking back to some of your very early songs, what types of things sparked your creativity? So obviously at some point you transitioned from drums to yeah. guitar and then started writing. I did. What was that like? Yeah. I was I was already playing drums in a number of Athens bands, and I'd seen REM when they were, you know, had rooms of only 80 to 90 people in them. And it just seen them sort of take off and, and generate their first record. Um, to me, the link, just given my age, um, you know, was the birds. And I, I love the birds, and I also like the fact that they were able to take Bob Dylan songs and, and get them played on the radio, or Dylan, you know, yeah. didn't necessarily have that kind of luck, but he wrote great songs. But it took the birds to sort of simplify and make them a little more economical and then, you know, give us, you know, um, you know, my back pages or something like that. But that was the place. And again, you know, when you hear Transcendent, it's like you have that Roger McGuinn 12 string and the beautiful stacked harmonies that that they could come up with. That was a real motivator. So a lot of the early sound that I was writing that became electric probably did sound birdsy and, and REM-ish. Um, it took a while to kind of break out of that mold and find my own voice. Uh, when I do songwriting seminars, I, I did more of them before the, uh, you know, post uh, pre-COVID right. thing. I would tell writers that, you know, you, you can listen, try not to let your influences be the thing that you've become so, uh, you know, emulating that it that people hear you as a revivalist. If you really are interested, get, find your own voice and your own way of writing, your own way of seeing reality, mm-hmm. and then put that in your, in your uh, instrument and see what happens. But it, it'll take years. Right. So don't be discouraged right. if it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Well, let's play one of your songs. We're going to listen to um, Goes Without Saying from the seminal Vigilantes of Love album, Audible Sigh, which I firmly believe that if if somebody has a record collection doesn't have Audible Sigh in it, it, it really is incomplete. It's, it's such a great album. I, I, and I would say, I, I think Landmark, I don't think that's overstating it. It's It's a very, it's a great album. Definitely a standout album in the course of your career, I would think. Thanks, yeah. We did, we, you know, but we had played that set, you know, we had like 25 or 30 songs going into that. This is just a, a real gloss, but Buddy Miller had agreed to produce the record. So we had just come off the road after about eight weeks, 
And sometimes that's the best way to go into a studio. You're you're basically playing what you played on stage the night before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Buddy brought in some nice filigree moments. Emmy Lou Harris sang on a track, and we had, um, you know, time to work out pedal steel parts and things like that. But it was just, it was so um, relaxed, I guess, when we put down the songs that we just kept recording for three, four-week periods. So the record originally was supposed to be done in two, but we had... You know, we had Buddy's Goodwill, and we had his home studio there in Nashville, so it, it became a good one. Uh, it, it's gotten great reviews, so I, I, I appreciate your comments on it. Well, it's, it is a great album, and I particularly love this song. Let's give it a listen, and we'll chat a little bit more about it on the backside. Right on. So what can you tell us about this song in particular? It's a great lyric. Um, do you remember writing this one and recording it? And what can you share about it? 
Yeah, a lot of the songs during that period, uh, Brian got written, they got written in the van. I mean, the lyrics, I would just come up with a cadence and grab the acoustic guitar, you know, usually in the hotel room. By the next night at Soundcheck, we might be, uh, you know, playing it at Soundcheck. And that was one of the songs. They're road songs. And I, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the early um, manifestations of Sunvolt and Jay Farrar, you know, when... Uh, they they wrote so much about what life looked like, you know, distorted and fractured inside the four walls of a of a band van, right. um, you know, whether it was Uncle Tupelo or or the uh, or the Sunvolt thing, right. and and I I'm sure that that you know um, impacted a lot of what I was doing because I thought well there's there's the thing you write from you can, you only you only can make people believe what you know and what we're doing is you know 180 shows a year in a van and trying to figure out how to get along with each other and deliver a good show every night. Um, whether it was on a, a good PA or something Fisher Price, but, you know, it was, you know that that was the life of a band in a van, and we we loved it. It's how I got to see America, and that that's kind of the uh, the loci of where that song was. What I love about that song and really that whole album is it sounds just as relevant today as it did, you know, when it was released back in what was that was it ninety nine. Yeah, ninety nine was the first version of it. Yeah, yeah, the ability to craft. And to tell a compelling story seems to be, at least to my, in my opinion, lost on much modern music. Not all of it. There are some definite great writers and storytellers out there. My buddy uh, Aaron with One A Dietzel, he he referred to you as an amazing storyteller, and and I ha- absolutely had to agree with him. What types of stories do you like to tell through your music? Yeah, a good question. And Aaron's a repeat offender. He's he's great, a good fellow. We we you know maintain contact through you know uh, social media conduits. I studied history in college, and I that was my major. And I had plans, sort of fuzzy plans, to either go to seminary or get a master's degree uh, in history. But the the uh, American experience that's that those two words together. I had always been drawn to the heroism that was manifested in this very country during the times of stress and during the times of the Great Depression and that, you know, went on into the Dust Bowl and those stories, you know, whether they were, you know, individual stories or community stories affected me greatly and a lot of the storytelling songs were people coming to the U.S. and trying to carve out some kind of identity. Again, a huge risk, you know, to come from, you know, um, you know Europe or, or Italy and come into, you know, the port in New York and and take your chances. I mean, come and if you survived the voyage at all, you came with very little, but you came with your hope. Right. You came with your dreams, and and that's where it started. But it wasn't that far during that period after the 1900s into you know the Great Depression. You know, well, the first two wars and then the Great Depression. So all of those things, those little epics where heroism and courage were were required, those have have impacted my songwriting a great deal. How do you get your mind into that space where you can? focus maybe on a fictitious individual or tell a story of someone who's down and out how do you get a picture in your mind that helps you to create this story or how do you take something from out there say something about the dust bowl and and make it yours to be able to tell that story i think i have to write with a guitar in my hand to make that work because there's a certain conjuring if you'll allow that word there's a certain conjuring that you're doing of the spirit of of the thing itself and then it might just be i mean you've already pointed out what and what we were talking about preface and all of this where you you have this song with a particular lyric line that turned out to be the title you can write a whole song around 
you know, a title, mm-hmm. you know, like the, like the one you gave me, you know, with friends like that, who needs enemies. Mm-hmm. That kind of is what happens when I'm writing these kind of songs. There'll be some kind of, you know, little phrase that kicks in and then the rest of the song. I know it sounds, you know, um, grandiose, but in some ways the song writes itself. Yeah. It knows what it yeah. wants. I try to be sensitive to that when I'm writing, but usually it's a chord progression or something mm-hmm. that just feels, you know, like it fits the mood of what a song like that would be about. Well, I think it's so important that stories continue to get handed down. And I think music, especially music that tells a story is such an important part of that lived experience. And I, you know, as a storyteller, you, you've really done such a great job. And I think that's one of the reasons so many of your songs are really maybe cinematic in a sense, like they almost are, or short movies. And, and, uh, you know, you can picture what you're, what you're saying. And I think that's a real skill. I don't know that everybody can conjure that and, or create that. It it probably came from falling in love with history stories. My mom was a bit of a poet and she was always, you know, buying these, you know, stories for teens, you know, books and and having me read. I was a pretty voracious reader when I was young, but I I just noticed on the, the album that that was the, uh, the, the got assigned to Capricorn was a record called Killing Floor. It was produced uh, by a fellow named Mark Hurd. But on that record, there was a song called Port of Entry. There was about the immigrants coming into the uh, to the island. There was a song called Eleanor that was about Eleanor Roosevelt, Andersonville, about the uh, Civil War camp in, in the South. Those songs, you know, kind of cemented my, uh, you know, there were a lot of acoustic clubs that I was playing, so I had songs about, um, I had a great uncle who apparently was just a hellacious baseball pitcher. I mean, he just he really? was great. Wow. Played really? in B teams, but I wrote a song called uh, Russell Perry, total fictional character, fict- uh, fictional character. Mm-hmm. But that song scored a lot of points. I mean, it wasn't just about that. It was it was finding that little bit of Russell Perry, you know, that's in everybody. You know, that that just this, this is what I do. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. So, you know, anyway, that that's just a, a, a small example of if you can take the specific and, and generate the general out of it, everybody can get in touch with it. It's not just a, a history lesson. I try to make it more than just a history lesson. Yeah. Well, it's couched in a story. And I think people like stories. Really, that is what caused me to start this podcast is to capture the stories of those who are making the stories, writing stories through music. And so... I'm fascinated by those things, and I think other, I hope others are. <laughs> it helps to build an audience, right? I love it. There's a there's a song on a record I did out here not too long ago. Uh, my wife's grandfather was a trucker, mm. uh, coast to coast, and the song is called um, I, "I Pulled Into Reno" because I couldn't make. Sense I just listened to that a little while ago. It's a great song. It is, and it's one of my favorites. And if if somebody said, "Could you narrow it down to ten songs?" I definitely that were your best. I would definitely put that one in because of where it came from. Yeah. And the the things that it that it kind of conjures along the way, the things that he was pulling from, because I had to imagine that I didn't know him that well, mm-hmm. and he's he's passed on now. God uh, God rest his soul. But he he was a generous man, and Mariah has shared story after story, and then you know slowly but surely this song started to galvanize and take shape. So I'm really proud of that one, uh, and that's on a record called uh, The Rags of Absence. Yeah, another really great song that I love from Audible Sigh is Resplendent. That's a song you wrote and you sang with Amy Lou Harris, great vocalist and great, great artist herself. How'd that come about and how did pairing up with Emily Lou happen? 
Yeah, the, the Emmy Lou connection was uh, thoroughly through uh, Buddy Miller. Uh, Buddy had been playing guitar in Spy Boy, which was her band, for a number of years. And uh, she had kind of tr entrusted Buddy as being the musical director of that band. So they went out and, and they, they made some big waves during that time period. It was right. It was the record that went out right after the Lanois record with, that had some covers on it that, that Emmy did. But the uh, the song came, you know, straight out of, of watching, uh, you know, WPA kind of things, you know, World uh, yeah. Works uh, Progress Administration sort of stuff and just being sensitive to that and thinking well here's what it would look like if it was you know individualized you know what you what do you do when it all starts you know when you take the chance you take the risk but things don't ever work out you lose your wife you lose your firstborn um, but then again the last verse which is the uh, you know honey we're all resplendent honey we're all uh, thrift store like a wino with a twenty dollar bill forever and eternally yours i just thought when when that verse showed up and i just i wrote it down as quick as i could and then Emmy came in, and and you know you'll you'll I, I guess we'll play that song, yeah. in the yeah. uh, in the tracking here. But Emmy came in and did that thing that she does with stacking her harmonies on top of each other, and that's where it really did become transcendent. And we, the band, we just all looked at each other and thought, "Holy crap, this is incredible! <laughs> this this is going to be well, great." She pulled the song into the stratosphere. Let's let's give it a listen, and we'll chat here in a sec. <laughs> California and just left us here with the wind Desperate times you know everybody's part but it's your own lines you're like to forget So what you were meets what you've now become Grins and says hey haven't we Splendid. 
So Buddy Miller plays on this track. Is he is he playing mandolin or guitar on this one? He's playing the yeah the mando guitar. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's that high string kind of kind of um, sort of um, you know angel hair tuning sort of thing. But it, it's called a mando guitar, um, and he he's great at it. He played that uh, on a number of tracks with Emmy, and I think there might I don't know if there's one more on the album he plays or not, but I, I think there's some guitar parts he plays here and there. But it's pretty it's pretty rare. Um, the band was pretty. You know, he just let us do what we do and, and went ahead with it. Well, this is another song about the Dust Bowl. And I, I love the fact that that period of American history isn't being forgotten. Because, you know, I look at I look at the life my boys have and they haven't had struggle. And I think because as a nation, we haven't really experienced struggle on a on a grand scale for for quite a long time. I love the fact that you're drawing people back to that period of true struggle in this country. And I think we can't forget that period of time. I'm glad you're telling those stories. It wasn't that long ago, was it? It wasn't, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, let's talk a little bit of Vigilantes of Love. Uh, obviously, you guys, your first album, Killing Floor, that was... Was that 1990 you guys put that first album on? 92. Yeah, 92 was the first... Was the th- that was actually the third... Oh, gotcha. Oh, Right. So the album Killing Floor, now that was produced by, by Mark Hurd and R.E.M.'s Peter Buck. How did that come out? Obviously, Mark Hurd is, is no longer with us, unfortunately, and Peter Buck is really a legend. So tell us how that all came about for that album. 
I met Mark one time before I ever started learning to play guitar, and he was from Macon, Georgia, and would occasionally come back through, even though I know he was living in L.A. and, and working. He was good friends with T-Bone Burnett. and We signed a, a production deal with Fingerprint Records, which was his label. That was the uh, production company that followed us into the studios with the Capricorn bigger deal that, that meant you know more you know radio and distribution and things like that. So Mark kind of came with the package, and to be quite honest, I was a little skeptical at first because I'd already seen always seen Mark and heard his records as kind of a a Christian James Taylor or something like mm-hmm. that. Dan Russell, who was the head of Fingerprint Records up there in uh, Merrimack, Massachusetts, he said, "Well, I want you to hear Mark's recent stuff." So he sent me this record called Satellite Sky, and it was oh, unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It came out of the blocks, yeah. and it'll rip your head off. It's an unbelievable record. And I thought, yeah, let's get him together, and we will. Anyway, Mark, Mark, and I did most of the record. Mark was behind the glass, and a friend of mine named Bill Holmes, who was a multi instrumentalist, we did probably three quarters of that record in the first ten days, wow. and then Pete Buck came in for the last week and did a few tracks over at John Keane's studio. John Keane, you know, world class producer produced everybody from, you know, Sugar and 10,000 Maniacs to all the REM overdubs. I mean, just countless, nice. countless bands. Uh, Robin Hitchcock, all those folks. Um, so we, it was a good arrangement. And once again, you know, our, our heads were just spinning as a band, but it was mostly just Billy and I with, the, you know, session players who were coming in. Travis McNabb was a drummer who I think has been playing with Sugarland for the last few years. But it was, it was a kind of a revolving door and this thing that we came up with was, you know, 16 songs. It's kind of like the record got made, and then we had to figure out, well, who's going to be on stage with this thing <laughs> represented? Yeah. But we we, co- we cobbled that together, too. But Vigilantes, when I say cobbled it together, it was always a band that was kind of cobbled together, you know, with its membership. You want to be able to tell your guys that there's a future in it, but because we were so low to the ground and independent, um, it, the, I, I wanted to be honest with everybody. At the front end of every year, we would have a meeting, mm-hmm. Uh, in my kitchen, I'd say, look, you know, here's the pros and cons for going on, and you're you're free at this point. I can't promise you anything. I can promise you that when we're on the road, we're going to make a really good wage. But outside of that, I'm not sure what happens on the, you know, the six months out of the year where we're not on the right. road. That is difficult because some get a, a nine-to-five job and, and get used to a consistent paycheck, and sometimes it's hard to leave that, especially if you want to start a family. So it is, you know, that's one of the many reasons, obviously, that it's, it's difficult to keep guys together. What I meant to say earlier is your, the first album, um, Jugular, 1990. Kind of looking back on that period, if Bill Melanie of today could sit down with the Bill who wrote Jugular, what, what do you think you might say to him? <laughs> that is a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I am grateful. I, I was a very earnest uh, writer, but being, and I don't have any problem telling anyone this, I, I'm, I'm a Christian believer, and I know that comes, people unpack that stuff, or they're going to turn their radio off or whatever as soon as they hear it. But I have never had any kind of uh, affinity for institutional Christianity that represents itself. It has been more of a a, a sidebar kind of project because it, it gave me hope for getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, and I believe it. Like I said, I was headed to seminary for a while, so I've done a lot of homework on packing it and unpacking it. If that record has any flaws, it's that there's a certain degree of polemic about it on that very topic because you know you you go through these you know early people who are the these early influences that say well you know you got to give witness you got to bear witness and usually that means annoying the hell out of people e- even though i i 
you know, I, I believe in Christ and who he said he was, but I think that record is peppered with certain little reverence, references. So if there's a flaw to it that kind of would make me wince when I go back and listen to it, it might be that. That being said, there's a lot of that record that is a foreshadowing of what's coming because there's, there's some darkness to it um, that I think uh, is, is worth preserving because it's the, the honest uh, assessment of our lives as individuals and, and as, a, as a culture. Your album, Rags of Absence, um, has one of my favorite uh, pieces of art on it, That just that cover. I love the style of it. Is that what is called folk art? Or what type of art is that? Because it's, it's, to me, it's just it's such an evocative album cover. I, I'm not sure what you would call it. It does have a folk primitive quality to it. That that fellow's name is Jim Vogel. He lives down the road from us. He's a he's a, a international artist, but he's he li- resides here um, in northern New Mexico. Jim Vogel did that picture, and it's called Day of the Dead. I know our, our mutual friend Chris Taylor has done some album artwork for you as well. Chris is great man. That guy is, does he ever slow down? No, he he doesn't. He's amazing. Whether he's doing artwork or songs, he's always on the go. Love Chris. I do too. In fact, music I use for the theme for my podcast that I start with and end with is A Rise and Shine by Chris. In fact, we're hopefully going to have him on in June. Now, as we were communicating before we started recording, one of the songs we wanted to talk about was The World's Tip Jar. It's a great song. What can you tell us about that song that we're going to listen to it? You know, it's a favorite pastime of most musicians. You're going to be sitting at a bar after sound check or something like that and probably drinking a beer or something harder. There, There's a camaraderie in bars. We've played a lot in the UK and gotten a chance to be in real Irish pubs and, and hang out there. And you sense it's the same everywhere. You know, you put strangers down, put a drink in front of them, and they're going to be best friends by the time they leave. That phrase, the world's the world's tip jar, I thought, what would that be like if we, if we walked out of bars with the same sort of spirit of camaraderie and connectedness and tried to bring it to life in day-to-day world you know and to me with mixing the two that's a holy spirit moment when we go have those kind of motivations so that was the image that i was really just how can i just you know really draw that out large paint it really clear like like you said earlier a cinematographic sort of image and and that song it only has two verses in it that's very strange for me because a lot of my songs are three four and five verses so this one is and i thought this is going to be perfect for the album opener and it's just got a a great feel to it Um, so that's that's kind of the story behind that and yeah i'm glad that uh, i'm glad that you'll play it it's going to be a I love hearing the thing. It's going to be. It's nice. a good one. Before we play, it, is that you singing that high harmony part in the chorus, or did you, or is that somebody else? I couldn't tell. That is me. Well, there's only certain times of the day where I could kind of hit that, <laughs> and it it has. A, I think it has a little bit of like the. I was a fan of the early Eagles records. I don't care what anybody says. I know they're the the laughing, you know, the whipping boy. But those first two Eagles records were oh, badass. Great. They were really, really great, great. writing. And uh, they had some moments, but those stacked harmonies, you know, where they really did the falsetto sort of Mm -hmm. thing, uh, they were really... Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's give it a quick listen. We'll chat.
This is a, a lazy afternoon, sitting on the porch type of song. I'm with you. I love the feel of it, the tempo. It's just got a relaxed and 
easy vibe to it. Really, really great song. Um, let's change gears a bit. This is we kind of get near the end of our time here. If you could sit down with a budding musician or songwriter, just getting started, what advice might you share with them? That's a good question. The The advice that I would have given somebody 15 years ago is different than what it is. I, I to, Well, let me just confess. I, I don't know how writers do it anymore. I, I don't know how you get your head above the surface of the pond and say, hey, over here, I've got something that's worth looking at. Uh, it seems so fractured. And the pond is super overstocked with the... Uh, you know, with a digital lifestyle now, anybody can make a record anywhere, anytime in their bedroom. So it means it means there's a lot of people vying for some kind of profile. I don't know how you do it. Um, for us, it meant getting in a van and trying to sell it one person at a time. And that was good. It, it put some hair on your chest, so to speak, but it, it can be disconcerting. So I, I've been fortunate to kind of keep on keeping on doing what I do, but I guess you start, you know, Find out who your friends are. First, find your voice. Find that thing that makes you unique and the thing that makes you feel beautiful. What is that thing that when you back away from it, you've written it, you've put it down, even if it's just a ragged-ass demo, mm -hmm. but you go back to it and you think, man, that's a moment. Then then put it out. You know, Put it out there and see what people think about it because my theory is this. We're all living in the same skin. And if something, it doesn't, it doesn't mean everybody's going to like what you do, but it means there's going to be more than one that likes it. Because if it affects you, puts that lump in your throat or that spring in your step or, you know, tear in your eye or smile on your face, there's going to be some other people, 10, 20, maybe thousands that feel the same way about what you just wrote. So don't be afraid to put it out, but keep writing, keep doing it and 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 don't don't take no for an answer. Right. You know, don't don't take the the bad reviews so hard to heart that you just give it up and go back to your, you know, your day job. And it's so funny you gave such a great answer, and it shows my level of immaturity. I'm sitting here when you said we all live. I thought you were going to say in a yellow submarine. <laughs> that's a great sentence. <laughs> I think that's, that puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice. And in the question I asked you, there is one I ask really every every artist I connect with because there are... I mean, do you find the answers being similar or, or, or different? They all differ a little bit, but they all have... There are some common themes, I think, being true to yourself, finding your voice. I mean, that's a very common theme. And I just think that's really profound. And I, I what I, I think of that artist who's just starting their journey, to have a, a library of people who have been doing this for... Well, in your case, over 30 years, there's some real wisdom that you can share. And even if a, a budding singer or songwriter musician takes away one thing from that, I think that's could be, a, you know, that could be a great source of encouragement for them. I, I feel like I've stepped up as a guitar player learning more about the instrument. So when I do pick it up, I'm still excited about it. I feel like I'm the kid skipping high school to go learn to play Black Dog. Try to keep that love, you know, always going, you know, that, that excitement about the instrument that you're playing. Play it better, learn more about it. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be one of the components as well as finding your voice. Sure, and that's remarkable advice for somebody who's been playing for so long uh, because I think strummers like myself we can get very complacent and think okay well you're right i'll have someone else to do this and that but really to challenge yourself 
could also improve your songwriting. And uh, so I think there's some great advice there. Now, if, if you were going to make the Mount Rushmore of American songwriters, which four faces do you think you would put up there? Oh my gosh. Where do you come up with this stuff? You know, American songwriter, you'd have to put Dylan up mm-hmm. there, I think. I, I think you'd have to put Robert Johnson up there. And I think you might have to put, uh, um, uh, let's put Cash up there. And so that leaves me one more. We've got Dylan. I'd want to say, you know, uh, Leonard Cohen. I have a friend in Seattle who would, who, who would, you know, chastise me for not putting Lou Reed up there, but I, I put Leonard Cohen up yeah. there. I think that's a great list. You've got Bob Dylan, Robert Johnson, Johnny Cash, and Leonard Cohen. That's that's a that's a very strong Mount Rushmore right there. It, it, it really is. Yeah, we need about ten Mount Rushmores. I, <laughs> I agree. So uh, as we kind of near the end of our time here, what, what's next for you? New record is called uh, Here It Opens With a Prayer, but it closes with a song, and that should be out hopefully in the next 60 days. Oh, okay, very cool. So, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm just getting the artwork done on that right now. Nice. So that'll that's album number 85 or thereabouts, I don't know. Let's talk about that. How can people buy your music? How can people best support you as an artist? Yeah, I've got all... I, I, this is one of the things that... it. It, it wasn't by plan or anything, but I actually own almost all of the titles. There have been record companies that have gone down under that have given me back the records, but out of all the records I've done, there's only one record out of the 85 that I don't own. Wow. So I, I've put all of them you know, in a download version, the digital version, at www.billmalanymusic.bandcamp.com. And I'll send you the link for that, Brian. Yeah, we'll put it in And then uh, the hard copy that I have of, of things are over at www.billmalanymusic.com. Yeah. So I'd like to end our time with something called a little bit of word association, just for kicks and giggles. So I'm going to say a word. I've got five or six of these. And you just share with uh, the first thing that comes to your mind, being mindful that my mom and my buddy Sean Cox will be listening. So so here, here we go. I've got a few of these for you. Desert. High. Is it high desert? Okay, got it. Love. Grace. Mm. Bob. Bob Dylan. I was wondering if you would go there. Sunshine. And shadows. Wow. Coyote. Coyote, that's great. Well, Joni Mitchell. How about oh, that? Oh, that's, a, that's, one, of that's her, a good, one of her great songs. I like that. It's a good association. Movie. House. Movie house. Oh, movie house. Okay. And last one, home. Peace and joy. I get two words on that. That's all right. You got all out. <laughs> no problem. Bill Melanie, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I am so grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. Brian, thank you. You've made it easy. I really appreciate this. Continued success in the, uh, in the uh, future uh, interviews. I appreciate that. I, that. That means a lot to me. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. I thank you for, for following or subscribing or leaving a kind review. Those things are the the bloodline of a podcast, so to speak. And I look forward to seeing you all on the next journey to the stage. And that's a wrap.